Welcome to the Loved Called Gifted podcast. This is your place to come for musings about spirituality, identity and purpose. I'm your host, Catherine Cowell. So I'm delighted for this episode of the Love Called Gifted podcast to be joined by Philip Francis Anderson. Thank you ever so much for joining me, Philip. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So Philip produces and hosts a podcast called Against the Odds, and he has a particular passion for telling the stories of people who have overcome barriers in order to achieve things and has his own story of facing and overcoming barriers. So welcome, Philip, and thank you ever so much for joining me for this conversation. Thank you. So having listened to some of your podcasts and some of the fabulous stories of people who've really overcome some significant challenges, I'm wondering what it is that motivates you to want to tell people's stories. A number of things, really. One of them is to create a liberating experience for people who've been marginalised, offering them encouragement of being believed in to people who haven't often been believed in the past. So trying to provide that liberating platform for people, I think, is a great motivator for me. Seeing them expressing themselves in a positive way as a result also brings satisfaction for me. One thing that I often found when I was putting together this podcast is it was a new departure for me in terms of broadcasting, because even though I'd had experience in radio, working in radio when you are mm. sort of in a more challenging sort of position, talking to MPs and local councillors and giving them a bit of a run for their money is a huge difference than active listening and being entrusted with the keys to people's lives and life stories which requires a lot more of trust, I think, between the two. They have to trust me, you know, and I have to trust them. Just listening to you talking about that then, I think there is something very different, isn't there, about being entrusted with somebody's story. And there is an honour in listening to somebody, and it can be really inspiring to listen to somebody's story. I'm wondering if you have any examples of people or someone whose story has particularly inspired you. The types of stories that do inspire me are accounts of, of true suffering. And one story in particular has been the story of Wayne Pugh. He was crowned Staffordshire Hero 2019. Now, Wayne's had a number of near-death experiences from almost get-go. At the age of eight, he sadly uh, was involved in a uh, serious road traffic accident that almost cost him his life. And then sadly, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 12. And then sadly, he lost his eyesight suddenly overnight at the age of 28. He was given only four days to live four years after that, when they found that his kidneys were failing, or one of his kidneys were failing. And then sometime after that, his pancreas was failing. And he managed to get a transplant for both. A kidney is not so rare, but an actual pancreas is very rare. And he was offered two in the space of uh, two hours. Wow. Which he said is incredible because I think from what I can recall, they only do about four pancreas transplants a year. But what's so striking about his story is he never gave up. Mm -hmm. He never gave up. And this resilience, 
despite him not having a belief in God, although he did say he did use the power of prayer yeah. during one of the times when he was waiting to go down to theatre. But he said, I've been given a number of chances. He says, and it's enabled me to appreciate the sanctity of life. Yeah. And that really is the most moving thing, really. But that's a story that's really stayed with me. And it's one that really moved me to tears in part. Yeah. And I was actually recording it. And uh, Wayne says, are you going to keep that in? I says, yes. Mm, yeah. And there's something very real in your accounting of that, about the fact that actually he did end up having a chunk of time where he didn't get out. And sometimes I think the kind of hero narrative of people who are facing difficulties, almost you, you often hear the story a bit truncated. So those really difficult times when somebody isn't feeling like they're overcoming sort of gets cut out of the film or the paperback version, you know, and, and actually it is the case, isn't it, that often that triumph and that resilience comes through a story which has really difficult points in it where it doesn't feel like somebody's overcoming and they kind of work their way through that. Well, I think with yeah. Wayne, he recognised the issues and he recognised what it meant for him. And I think that's half the battle because there is this attitude that pervades with certain people depending on circumstance, but it's the woe, pity me sort of reaction. And, and until you experience something, you don't always know how you're going to react. But the beauty of it was the fact that he'd recognised what had happened and he could have chose to give up or move on. Yeah. And he chose to move on. He said, life's for the living. He says, and one of the things that he'd learnt to do is to get his smile back. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your best hope for the stories that you tell? What are you hoping will be the outcome of telling them? For whoever to find peace of some kind. Mm. I remember one guest saying to me, how sharing his story had helped him to compartmentalise everything. It enabled him to turn the page, to move yeah. on. So it helps the person who's telling the story, as you say, sometimes to work through some of that and, as you were describing, put it into chapters. Yes. So I, I know, Philip, that your motivation comes in part from your own experiences. So I wonder what kind of barriers you've needed to overcome. I will give you a little bit of a list. Um, they include my visual impairment, mm -hmm. my hypoglycemia, alcoholism, and early trauma and rejection. Yeah. The visual impairment really has been a barrier, but not of my own volition, of my own making. And the barriers have come from society and parents that have created a problem created the demarcation. They've spun this web. They spun a web around me mm. as though there was an embarrassment that they had to hide away. I think there was a lot of emphasis on the disability rather than on the ability. Yeah. So there was a lot of negativity when I was growing up around my visual impairment and um, things like, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. I remember once making my father a cup of tea. I would have been, what, 11, 12? And when he found out I'd made it, because I was so pleased I'd done it for him, mm. he sent it back to the kitchen and asked for it to be remade, but not by me. Gosh. And had he even tried it at that point? No. He didn't want to. 
Yeah. That's the kind of thing which really sticks with you, doesn't it? Those sorts of moments, potentially. It still brings a tear to my own eyes, really, whenever I recount it, even though I feel as though I've dealt with it. Mm. It's still very, it still pulls at the heartstrings somewhat because at such a young age, when you're impressionable, you're developing, you look to your parents as examples, as models for all sorts of reasons. And to be told you're incapable is almost this, it's almost saying you're an accident at birth. Mm. Um, and you sense their regret. Yeah. Very early on. And it, 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 it gives one a complex. However, people try to perhaps, you know, hide that. Oh, um, you know, but it does give you a complex. And I found when I was growing up, one of the things that I noticed was it was affecting my friendships in some ways because I didn't know how to accept a compliment from people because I had all of this negativity from a very early age where my parents didn't believe in me, which led to me not believing in myself. Yeah. And so when people would pay me a compliment, I didn't believe them either. And I would just have this disbelief written all over my face, doubtlessly. And I would verbally articulate my thoughts and say, really? Mm. And as I got older and uh, was mixing more with adults and women, I found that they got quite cross sometimes. They would say, you know, I genuinely meant what I said. Yeah. But it didn't always help because I found as though that traumatic experience had sort of already sowed the seeds of doubt very early on that had a profound impact mentally, psychologically, emotionally on me and affected me in so many different ways, as though other issues weren't bad enough. Mm. Um, I already had problems with my hypoglycemia. Um, it's not diabetes. Some people confuse it with diabetes. But if my sugar levels dropped, which did happen quite often, and at the beginning I didn't know that was the reason because I didn't discover I'd got hypoglycemia until much older, and it can affect concentration and people couldn't understand that at school. And again, I was labelled a problem child. Well, I can imagine that that could have masqueraded as all sorts of things that people would regard as potentially behavioural, like you're lacking concentration, you're daydreaming, you're not, not thinking clearly. Does it have an impact on memory? Um, yes, very, very much so. I suppose this is more cognitive. But if my sugar levels are low, I can read something at least four times and it still not mean anything. Yeah. yeah. And yet other days, I'm as acute as, you know, a penknife. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes, that is the case with quite a lot of conditions, isn't it? That, that some people, that people will say that they have good days and bad days or things are easier on one day than they are on another. And it's not always easy to work out why. But for the outside world, that can lead people to think that it's not as bad as your painting because, well, sometimes he manages. Yeah. That is true. That is absolutely true. But often it's the case that they only ever see you on your good days. 
And if I've got an interview coming up with people, or if I was talking with people at the Open University, because I'm back studying with them again, I often say I find that sort of remote studying, the remote learning, far easier than being in a a classroom under a lot of pressure, surrounded by competition and, you know, always wanting to get something right. So being free of all of that has helped me. And But whenever I've had to make a call to the OU about something and I'm not feeling my best, I'll postpone it. I will just deliberately just postpone it until I feel okay because I just know I would end up getting into a verbal tangle because the moment I sense stress kicking in, that has an impact on my sugar levels instantly because obviously it affects the heart rate and before you know it i find that a lot of my energy has been consumed by other things rather than by my cognition yeah and that's the thing that ends up suffering because all the energy is required elsewhere yes yeah there is a loneliness i think that occurs sometimes with kind of chronic conditions in terms of that, you were saying that you would tend to postpone things. And I'm thinking of people who I know and have known who struggle with particular things. And, and if all their bad days are alone and people only see the good days, there is a sense sometimes, I think, of being very much left by yourself with the thing. I think so. And people don't often see your loneliness, your sadness, mm. the things that you're experiencing. And then all of a sudden you react in anger. Yeah. People are very quick to pounce on that. Rather than being curious, they're more inclined to be critical. Yeah, I, I think that would be a good piece of advice, to actually be curious rather than critical, I think. The one thing that I didn't discuss with too many people, but it did have, again, a big impact on me, was alcoholism. I never actually told anybody I was going to give up drink, but certain people who knew me at the time was seeing the effect alcohol was having on me. Again, it was something I used as an escapism, really, and very foolishly, but I didn't see it as being foolish at the time as such. I never really, during my 20 or 30 years relationship with alcohol, did I ever choose to knock it on the head. I think there was once where I went six months, thought, oh, okay, yeah, saved a bit of dosh, you know. Yeah. There was no real conscious decision really behind that. But later on, I remember just losing the plot and uh, slamming this glass down after quite a heavy session and scaring my son. And he was about 18 at the time. I just remember uh, going into his room and waving this wine glass over my head and slammed it on the desk, you know. And... Um, from that day on, it really upset me. It really worried me. I thought this could have been really more serious. It could have really gone um, a lot, lot further than that. And uh, I think that was the turning point. It was about four years ago. And that was the turning point for me. It was the deciding factor to give up. And I did. I couldn't risk losing my own son at the cost of anything. And the um, thing is, I, I walked out that night and planned on suicide. I just couldn't deal with it. And he was looking for me for, for quite some time. He didn't know where I'd gone. Um, 
I just walked for about two and a half hours and then caught the train to a friend's quite a number of miles away, paying by cash, not using credit card because I thought foolishly again, didn't want to be traced. Although being blind, you difficult to hide yourself really. And um, four days away gave me a moment to reflect on the yeah. priorities in life and what mattered. And um, I rang him up and he came over and picked me up on the Sunday. He was telling me how he and another close friend of mine uh, were going around all the likely places I might be asking anyone if they'd seen me. That was a very, very traumatic time. And, you know, I've not touched alcohol ever since. Um, I went cold turkey straight away. And up until that point, I think I was on three bottles of whiskey a week. Right. But um, my son is the greatest treasure for me. Yeah. His mother and I separated and finally divorced, sadly. At senior school, when they discovered his parents were both blind, uh, they made his life hell. Oh, gosh. And he suffered in silence. Um, and because he was between homes, between his mother and I, it made it very, very difficult to always keep on top of it. But I take my hat off to him for the courage he showed. I only said to myself, had I not been drinking heavily towards the end, when he had got this gaming addiction, and the only place where he felt as though he could achieve was through gaming and corpsing behind the screen. Um, and like me with my alcoholism, it's this breaking the cycle of denial. Yeah. And he didn't recognize he had got a problem, but eventually it came to a head and he realized the friendship went from strength to strength and it was as though we'd rediscovered one another and that really helped it really did yeah a restoration of that relationship by the sound of things having worked through stuff and both having had things to overcome it sounds as if you've sort of got back to a good place oh absolutely i know people have said it before you know if you didn't argue you would never have the pleasure of being you know of making up <laughs> and i think you can also discover things about each other if you listen in to each other's chemistries. Yeah. Uh, I have learned a lot from that. Uh, and like with Wayne, you know, to appreciate the sanctity of life. And things can be very volatile at times and seemingly, you know, in a very dark place. But friendships can be mended. And sometimes you've only got the now to work with. Well, the now can sow the seeds for enlightenment to come. Yes, yeah, they can. So of the barriers that you've talked about that you've needed to overcome, would you say that there are some of those barriers that have been harder than others? Oh, I think there's been a couple, really. I think the early trauma I suffered and the rejection I suffered in early childhood was quite a big one. And I don't think I ever really came to terms with it thoroughly, even though I developed quite a, a resilient sort of personality and a character. I suppose I developed a sharp tongue during my teenage years. And again, that was a facade, really. It was a survival mechanism uh, to get me through it, to sort of avert attention away from what I was considering to be an issue, a major issue with friendships, with People sort of pay me compliments and me not actually accepting it uh, because 
I didn't really accept myself. Yeah. And it wasn't until much, much later when I realized who I was and developing this identity. Just one thing I've learned is patience um, and understanding and empathy. Um, mm. So I think, you know, if I've not learned that from all what I've been through. <laughs> um, you've talked a lot about the things which, the challenges that you've had and the difficulties that you've had. And high on that list comes that early trauma and rejection and then the alcoholism. But the visual impairment hasn't actually featured in your description of the things that you found most difficult. And that interests me because I think from the outside, people might assume that that would be the big thing which you're dealing with. It's not me shelving it or ignoring it, but that's something that's been present from birth. Yeah. And therefore is not a problem from where I'm concerned. I wouldn't have put it on my list of priorities or as high up on my list of priorities because I feel as though it's extemporaneous. It's outside where the issues occur and I'm having to react accordingly. So, so far as I'm concerned, the visual impairment isn't as much of a challenge but the other experiences that I've actually encountered and had had more of a, an effect on me. And I felt those for what they really are. And that's where I felt the tests have come. Mm. When people have challenged me as a person and have called into question my abilities which has also threatened my existence to a large extent of who I am as a person, my identity, what I stand for. And I felt growing up, I had to a large extent find my own way in life. Hmm. Well, I became quite defiant. Uh, well, that trauma I spoke to you about in early childhood and the rejection I experienced I was out to, in a way, prove first to my father that I was no, I was no failure. And I became very determined and it taught me to do things and to try things and to go the extra mile. Because mm. when you have a, a visual impairment or whether you have any disability, I think well, people expect you to make mistakes and therefore you have to do something 200% each time, which is very exhausting, rather than 100%. Yeah. So you're always proving yourself. Um, but it wasn't until much later till I found out who I was. And it was after that time when I quit alcohol mm. that I... I came to a realization of my own identity, my true identity, and I discovered my sense of humor. Mm. I found I could laugh. So was there something about having got over the alcoholism that in the process of that and in the process of growing as a person that you were actually able to let go of some of the defenses and barriers that you had used to help you get through in earlier years? I think the alcohol was a barrier. Yeah. To understanding. 
And I think it got in the way of so much. Yes. Um, because I'd become desensitized to everything. I tuned out of a lot of things, but when the alcohol set in and I was totally and utterly under the uh, influence, I would worrel in a lot of what had gone on in the past and it wouldn't take long before I was in floods of tears. I, I didn't enjoy drinking in company mm. because, again, I needed that time. I needed it to be my time. I became very selfish. Alcohol made me into a very selfish individual, if I'm being honest. Yeah. And even to the point where I, at the time, I just denied who I was and wanted to deny who I was. Mm. And I think leaving boarding school and returning home and having to sort of find my own feet in the big wide world, so to speak, and with very little help from my dad, apart from financial, um, which is not really what I wanted. I wanted, you know, the emotional elements of it as well. Yeah. Um, I wanted there to be a chemistry between us. I'd come home at weekends and he wasn't always there. And I, I, I sensed the rejection even more, you know, anything to get out of the way of seeing me. Mm. And again, I was once more reminded of the fact that I was an inconvenience. I was an embarrassment. You know what they used to do with, in the Victorian days, you know, they had a child who was, had any form of disability. They used to lock it away. But in terms of letting go, I think the moment I quit the alcohol, I realized what was really behind all of this was I kept closing the lid, the door, mm -hmm. on everything that I had suffered rather than actually dealing with it. Yes. It gave me some reassurance that I'd still got my life. I was still here. You know, God obviously had a purpose for me. Mm. Uh, I rekindled my faith in God, found the fruits of the Spirit very helpful, of love, loving kindness, peace, joy. You know, it can all make a huge difference in yeah. one's life. Yeah. And having little to strive for and a lot to live for, Buddhism teaches to let go of things that cause suffering. And I think when you can identify what those things are that cause the suffering, then you will find enlightenment. Yeah. Um, you find yeah. that, li you experience that liberation. And they do say, don't they, that life is short, but it takes us a long time before we start living it. <laughs> yes, there is some truth in that. I liked what you said a bit ago about having a lot to live for, but not a lot to strive for. Yeah. And there is something in that, isn't there, about being able to step out of that place of feeling like you need to prove yourself. You were saying earlier that you felt you needed to prove yourself to your dad and moving to a place where actually you don't need to prove the world wrong. You can just do things for your own satisfaction. You can do the things that are things to live for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And only when you feel comfortable within yourself mm. can you actually do that. Yeah. And I found that over time, it is getting easier. Yeah. I thought there was a somewhat marvellous, I don't know if irony is the right word, about the fact that you had that real sense from your dad of being rejected and kind of put out of sight, out of mind, and the fact that many of your achievements have actually been in the field of broadcasting. 
which is rather wonderfully the opposite of that. And I wonder of those things that you've achieved in your professional life, if there are some that you're particularly proud of. My son is the biggest thing that I'm proud of Yeah. in terms of my own personal achievements. Yeah. Nothing more gives you greater joy than bringing a life into the world mm. um, and watching it develop and concentrating on the nurturing. And I think it held a special moment for me because I felt I didn't get that nurturing. Being there for their first achievements, yeah. not, not denigrating, you know, because I knew then how important recognition of one's achievements really are. But you were able to use your experiences with your own father to guide and shape the way that you have brought up your son and the way that you formed a relationship with him. There's something rather good in that, isn't there? One of the things that you said to me when we chatted before is that whilst your major issues or challenges have been around that early trauma and rejection and the emotional impact that that has had and the visual impairment has been a much lesser thing one of the things that you've pointed out is that sometimes the reaction that you have got as a visually impaired person has presented challenges that have kind of exacerbated those internal challenges that you faced oh absolutely i suppose i call them my pet peeves <laughs> so um, I wonder if you have some pet peeves you could share and also some advice to people when they are interacting with people who are visually impaired or who generally have challenges that we would refer to as disability. Although I completely take your point that the emphasis needs to be on the ability, not the dis bit. Indeed. I think there are several things that sort of spring to mind. People are very quick to make assumptions and it goes back to the point again where be curious rather than critical or yeah. be curious rather than making assumptions. And again, treating us as individuals as opposed to social stereotypes might help. I mean, there are times when assumptions are made and, you know, I like wearing my shorts all the time, you know, and I think it goes back to being a kid. I love that liberation and I love that, that feeling of you know, not being restricted. The assumption people make, you know, when I go out in shorts and they'll see me, if it's inclement weather in particular, and they'll say, uh, they'll I'll say, oh, has your carer sent you out like that? Oh, as, though I'm, as though I'm incapable of making choices. That's just rude. Well, it is, absolutely. Or if I'm particularly, you know, smart, and I tend to try and be smart, but that, that's the type of person I am. When I'm, my son describes me as very smart and casual. <laughs> okay. um, and people say, oh, has your carer addressed you? How smart you look. Oh. And again, it's that detracting away from you and your abilities you almost feel like you're just a shadow of something hmm. rather than as a person and again i used to grip my teeth <laughs> um but i'll share a couple with you um i didn't know blind people were allowed to have children oh gosh yep that's a common one i didn't know blind people were allowed to have children um or when I was out with my child and he was about six, I was taking him up to school uh, and we're on the bus. And I remember this lady sitting opposite us and saying, you're going to be a big help to your dad when you get older. And my son just turned round and said, my parents haven't given birth to a guide dog. 
Oh, well done, your son. Well, I thought that. I, I gave you know a hug at the time, you know. Was, yeah. <laughs> you know, so those little pet peeves, really. You know, going back to the shorts one, you know, is it a, you know, a genuine sense of caring or is it just people being just totally and utterly stupid, you know, and rude? But they forget that I'm an adult. I have thoughts and feelings and I'm capable of making decisions. And But it does make you feel worthless if you let it. It could really drag you down and it, it's echoes of the past. Mm. Of what I suffered when my dad rejected that first cup of tea. So it didn't just happen within the house, you know, the home. It's happening all over society. And it's one of the reasons why I always worked for myself, uh, because I turned what people might have termed as a disability into an advantage. Yes. And um, I was showing them the positive side of disability um, and taking the dis out of it and focusing on the ability and looking at saying, well, my motto was, to every problem, there's a solution. There's a level of creativity, isn't there, that's required when you need to navigate the world in a way that it isn't absolutely designed for. It's a very interesting point, navigating the world. I like that. I think I tend to avoid situations as much as I possibly can now that might give rise to more suffering, where a lot more assumptions might be made. And if I do encounter these sufferings from time to time, is what do I do to try and deal with it? And again, it goes back to that point of, I don't have to prove myself. It's not me with the issue. And it goes back to a point I made earlier about it's not the disability, so, so-called, so that's the issue. Yeah. It's the barriers that society puts up. Yes. Yeah. And they aren't my problem. And I'm not really keen to try and shatter them, destroy them, because that would consume more of my energy. All I will do is to try and, whenever I am confronted by them, is to have always a solution of getting over them and showing people that there is a way, there's an alternative to the barrier. Yes. Because you can end up making that problem your problem and that barrier your barrier. And it can be an excuse. Yeah. I'm wondering where people could find your blog and your podcast and information about the other things that you're doing. The Against the Odds Motivational podcast is available wherever you choose to get your podcasts. You can just search for Against the Odds Motivational podcast. It's essentially you put the word motivational in if you're Googling it because um, there is another podcast called Against the Odds. And that's an American one, and it's for American heroes. Right. Um, so um, <laughs> the people say, oh, I'm enjoying this interview, Philip, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, do I sound like that? <laughs> <laughs> or you can just go to my website. It's againsttheoddspodcast.com. Philip, this has been really interesting. Thank you ever so much. But no, it's been the most enjoyable time. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Oh, thank you very much. It's been really good. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Loved Called Gifted podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email lovedcalledgifted at gmail.com. You can find a transcript of this podcast at lovedcalledgifted.com. And that's also the place to go if you're interested in the Loved Called Gifted course, or if you'd like to find out about spiritual direction or coaching. Thank you for listening. <laughs>